Okay, here we go. All right, so tonight we're going to continue and jump right back into overview of the Old Testament and of Old Testament times. And you have a handout for tonight. Uh, you also have either last, well, you have some version of last week's. So I kind of slightly corrected it and updated it. Um, but, but the one poster to the one handed out last week is fine. You remember we looked at an overview of, we introduced the context of the Near East, these maps. We're going to go back to them some tonight. Uh, but we're also going to map out um, some things in the, in the canon or the way the Bible is arranged. Okay, so we're going to talk about that tonight too. Um, I gave you an outline, a basic general outline with some highlights for the book of Isaiah last week. We really will not do much with directly addressing Isaiah uh, this time. And that may be the case a couple of these times on Wednesday night because you need to understand some other things and then we'll start relating them back to Isaiah. Okay. So for some of us, this is going to be, be a review of maybe some other things you've studied with me before or that you've studied in other Bible studies. But it's good to go back over this and make sure we're kind of all on the same page. And Brandon, you have your... Okay, awesome. You've got your map. And then this is, yeah, and this is a, um, I'll just, since you're keeping a notebook, this is a slightly corrected version of last week. I corrected a couple things and added a couple things. All right, so tonight, um, let's pick up on this big picture overview, understanding Isaiah in its Old Testament context, uh, part two. So overview of the Old Testament canon. Now, first of all, uh, let me just kind of go into some words here uh, in terms. Old Testament. Do you think Jewish people call what we call the Old Testament the Old Testament? What do you think? No. <laughs> okay, so to them, it's the Bible, right? Um, it's, it's the Bible, and it's the Bible that they um, would refer to as the Bible. Now, the, um, let me introduce another term here, canon. Old Testament canon, does that mean that you shoot the Old Testament, that you shoot artillery out of the Old Testament? Is that what that means? Uh, John, your military, is that spelled the same way that, I, that a cannon that shoots artillery? It's actually not, right? Okay. So you'll notice that it's C-A-N-O-N, right? And it comes from actually a Near Eastern word, um, Egyptian to Greek word, I think, kanon, uh, uh, meaning like measuring read, okay? And so it's like the standard, yes, ma'am? Measuring read, okay, or like a standard. Like, okay, so um, for instance, rule, rules would be things that guide us, correct? But rules can also set standards, correct? Okay. Now, most of you are much younger than I am, but in the ancient days, when I went to elementary school, uh, we still had something that was 12 inches that was like a wooden thing typically, although, um, you know, uh, the, the, new, the newfangled ones were like plastic and metal. They were 12 inches, and they were marked like 1 inch, 2 inch, 3 inch, all the way to 12 inches. What does anybody remember what those ancient devices were called? Rulers. Rulers. So, Jane, so same kind of thing, right? A, a ruler gives you a standard of measurement. Do you follow this? 
So a canon or canon is giving you a standard of measurement, both for what is in the corpus that is understood to meet the standard, right, of the corpus, as well as um, framing that corpus out, okay? So um, you get these fertile crescent words that govern um, a lot of what we talk about with the Bible. I mentioned this last week. We'll go, we can go back and look on the map, but you may remember up on the Phoenician or the, you know, the, the northern Levantine coast, right? I pointed out there was a, a, a city, an ancient city there, you know, on the land bridge where there was the little string of fertile crescent, right? That was called Byblos, right? Byblos. Um, Bible, right, comes from a Latinized derived word from Biblos, Biblia. Because, remember I told y'all, Ugarit and Biblos, the first written you know, languages come out of that little area of the Fertile Crescent, the, the oldest ones, right? And um, so uh, the word for books in Latin is Biblia. And what do we call this thing? But where's that weird word come from? I just told you, right? Okay, and by the way, is this a book? Yes, in one sense it is. Is it books, plural? Yes, hence, Biblia, Bible. Everybody with me? Okay, so canon, there's none to pertain to this, but ruler, right? And Biblia, or books, the books that are in the canon. Got it? Okay. So those are all kind of terms of art that, you know, you just kind of take for granted or like you've been taught. But anyway, that's, that's where those come from, okay? Um, the canon, like canon gets then transposed over into, you'll talk about the canon of um, Beethoven's, you know, musical compositions or the canon of Shakespeare. Everything that, and that means everything that Shakespeare wrote, right? The canon of the Bible is everything that is God-inspired at a Old Testament term prophetic and New Testament term apostolic standard and accepted as not just inspired, but specifically as inspired for everyone that God intends to be through his prophets or apostles for you know, ongoing authority at a, at a, at a divine level of written authority. So, um, yes, yes. Yes, scriptures, okay? So scriptures comes from the, the word for writings, okay? So that, that, that scriptura is, is also, okay? So writings, yes. So, and that's, these are, and by the way, the Bible, the Bible doesn't talk about the Bible, right? The Bible talks about Bruce scriptures. So, like, you know, Paul to Timothy says all scriptures are inspired and, okay, so you remember that, right? So that's the language inside the Bible that would be more commonly used, by the way, okay? Um, good. Good.
so let's keep going. But that is that was a very good point, Bruce. So that's yet another term that you're familiar with. That's that's what you're talking about, okay? Um, so um, Old Testament canon, Hebrew scripture canon. If you look over to, let's just go over to. And I, I, I'm sorry, I, but I, this is awesome. I see almost all of y'all have Bibles with you, and probably those of you don't have a, an app on your phone the way Nancy does. So that's good. I'm glad. Please remember to do this because I keep forgetting to bring out a stack of Bibles out here. You know, um, the government told us we couldn't have any Bibles for a while, so now I'm joking. But anyway, we were just trying to be safe. So, um, not yet. <laughs> not quite yet. Yes. Hopefully we can get those new and this is not a joke. You know, you've heard me complaining about this for like the last year or so, that my understanding is the People's, well, the Chinese Communist Party of the People's Republic of China is publishing a new approved by the state Bible with, I don't know how much they're doing with cutting and pasting and adding, but I know that it has a study guide that is consonant with Maoist communist principles. And that's what they want all the Christians to use in China now. And apparently that's going to be a big push in the coming years. So they're going to say, give us, those, those Bibles are out of date. Let us give you the right Bible. So anyway, speaking of, we're not quite there yet, Jim, but, you know, who knows. Um, yes. Yeah. So... Um, let me just go, go to this. So over in Luke, chapter 24, Jesus has appeared with two disciples, Cleopas, or Clopas and the other one, on the road to Emmaus. This is after his resurrection. You all will remember this. If you're at Wednesday night Bible study, I mean, I'm looking around at you guys. You all will remember this, right? This is the context, okay? Now, if you look at, so um, you remember that they're all bummed out because they thought Jesus was the Messiah, and now he's been crucified, and they're so upset, and they think this stranger who's appeared, who's clueless about this, who's asking them why they're so upset, and of course it's Jesus. Y'all remember this, right? But they don't realize it's Jesus. And... Um, Anyway, then, and this directly connects, this next uh, 25, let's pick up a 25. Verse 26 directly connects with Isaiah, by the way, and the suffering servant that we'll keep circling around this whole year as we look at Isaiah. But verse 27 is where I want to end up. So, and he said to them, this is Jesus, O foolish ones, everybody with me? Luke 24, picking up at verse 25. Chapter 24, verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Now I can tell you when Jesus is talking about the prophets, he's not just exclusively talking about Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and maybe Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah thrown in. You know, okay. So he's talking about the Hebrew scriptures. Okay. Because in Hebrew understanding, for instance, Moses is a prophet, okay? Samuel's a prophet, okay? Et cetera, okay? So um, what he's really talking about is the scriptures here, broadly speaking, okay? And then he's going to get even more specific. All that the prophets have spoken, 
Was it not necessary that the Messiah, the Christ, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Now that's, again, that's directly going to connect with Isaiah 52 and 53 and then spread out to other parts of Isaiah and obviously the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures. Verse 27, And beginning with Moses, you can circle Moses there, beginning with Moses... And all the prophets, circle prophets, if you're willing to write in your Bible. He interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Okay? Um, now, in the Hebrew Bible, and the way the Jewish Bible is set up, there are three main segments or sections. Torah, instruction, teaching, oftentimes translated in English as law, okay? Those are the books of Moses. Two out of every three times, and maybe three out of every four times, when you're reading the Gospels and Jesus refers to Moses, if we're outside of the transfiguration, right, if we're not in the transfiguration, Three out of every four times, and this is just off the top of my head, it's rough, but when Jesus talks about Moses, he's not talking about Moses, the person trotting in here. And Moses does do that at the Transfiguration. Nor is he talking specifically about Moses, like in a particular situation. He's talking about the books of Moses, which means Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Got me? Okay. If I'm talking about Shakespeare, you know, Shakespeare often uses, you know, I'm talking about the author, but I'm also talking about the work, right? Okay, so that's, that's a little bit of what you have here, only more so when he says Moses. Because for the Jews, for the Hebrew thought, when you say Moses, you're talking about those five books, which are the key, like they're the anchor books of the Hebrew scriptures, okay? And, and then you've got um, the, the prophets, and the Hebrew word for prophets, plural, Navi is, is, is singular, Naviim is plural, right? So, Torah, otherwise known colloquially as Moses, right? Moses' books. Naviim, and then Ketuvim, which means writings. Now, if you look at this handout that I've given you, you can see the breakout of this. So, um, over there, kind of over to the right, there's a couple different columns. You see that Tanakh there? Tanakh is, you know, bringing, bringing basically, I mean, actually, it's an acronym because it's, it's like the, the, the vowels are just kind of added in. So, you got um, Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim, right? Do y'all see that? So that gives you the word, the created word, Tanakh, which is like the whole Jewish Bible because it's Torah, the prophets, and the writings. Um, and so you see that over in the far right column, right? They're kind of the purpley thing. Okay. Then you go over to the left of that, you see you've got Torah, what a lot of English speakers or you know, 
Western Protestants refer to as the Pentateuch, which means five books. You've got the early or former prophets. The Nevi'im Rishonim. Okay? And then you've got the latter or the later prophets. And then you have the Ketuvim, the writings. So the Bible, as Jesus understands it, is in that sequence. Y'all with me? That's the way Jews understand the Old Testament. The, um, the Bible, as we know it, as Protestants, is broken out differently. Um, you don't need to get bothered by that. It's just helpful, and that's why I'm going to just cover briefly. It's helpful to know the different sequences because they do have, it matters which books come in what order and how you end up emphasizing. Jim, yes? Is this more chronological than what we're used to seeing for Old Testament order? I know our Old Testament order is not chronological. Yes, um, yes, it's not. Um, this is, is not necessarily more chronological because it's got its own scheme to it. And let's go through that. So neither one of them achieves this like a better chronology. And, and arguably, actually, the one we know, you know, what we would call our Bible or whatever, has, has a slightly better chronology, maybe. Let me, let's, let's look at this, and then y'all tell me what you think. It, they're, they're really, the, the arrangement has different theological highlights and different narrative or history highlights. So let, let me just go through some of this, and you'll see what I'm talking about, okay? So uh, does anybody have any questions about this, though, so far? Uh, no, let me also just point out one thing. The, the Jews, because they're coming from, you, you understand, in Jesus' day, well, there, there are books that are increasingly published, right? But they're, they're mainly talking, like in synagogues, you're talking in terms of scrolls, okay? So you're looking at scrolls. And, and by the way, um, what we would call the minor prophets are one scroll, okay? So that's why uh, when you break this out, you've got like, um, you know, the, the little prophets, the 12 prophets all together, okay? Is one, okay this one. And um, First Kings and Second Kings, First Samuel, Second Samuel, in the Jewish Bible, it's Samuel, Okay, it's kings, right? So um, let me also say this. As long as I'm giving y'all a headache, kind of maybe thinking about this, let me give you another headache. Um, when You've heard me say this before, I know, a bunch of times, okay? It, it, particularly when we're looking at different things. Paul did not sit there and say, ah, writing to the Romans. Now, chapter 2, verse 1. He's not superimposing chapters and verses when he's writing, okay? Neither did Luke, nor Matthew, nor any of the rest of them. Old Testament the same way. You know, Moses, or whoever's getting Moses' you know, storyline and you know, editing the final version, they're not sitting there slapping chapters and verses on this stuff. These are added in the medieval period because 
people who are less faithful don't memorize the whole Bible. Now, most of y'all do, so you can be like Paul when he can sit there and say, and as Isaiah once said, you know, and he just starts throwing out. You notice if you're reading Paul, he never says. As Isaiah said in chapter 51, verse 2, have you ever read that in the New Testament? Does he ever talk like that? No way, because <laughs> this is like, this is anachronistic stuff, slapping these chapters and verses on these books, okay? So, by the way, just that's a side note, that... That just, as long as I'm giving you a headache, I'm going to give you a bigger one, too. So just remember that, right? Um, that actually makes me feel better because <laughs> I can make broad references to yes. something in the book of Psalms. Yes. Not going, oh, that's the 104th Psalm, the third and fourth verse. Yes, and exactly. So if it, Paul can do it. I Paul can do it, yeah. See, you're more Pauline. <laughs> Maybe apostolic even, you know. <laughs> okay. So, all right, so... Um, Canon, um, yeah, let's, let's just look at a few uh, highlights. Let's see, let me just point this out. Okay, so the, one of the points here is in the Jewish mind, and by the way, in Jesus' point of reference, Joshua is a prophet. Okay, and he, he's literally a prophet in the, in, in the way he's understood. Um, Judges, that's a prophetic book, okay? Uh, Samuel, prophetic. Kings, prophetic. Now, notice the very first book of the latter prophets. Which one is the very first? Isaiah. Which one is the first of ours when you get to, like, the major prophets? It's Isaiah, right? Now, there are times, there are a couple, a few times in the New Testament where somebody's referring to Isaiah, okay, where the writers are referring to Isaiah, and sometimes they'll say, like, something from Isaiah, and then they'll quote another prophet underneath Isaiah. But they're thinking, again, like, it's kind of like with Moses, right? They're thinking in terms of the general arrangement, and Isaiah is the lead guy, right? Okay, so does that make sense to y'all, too? It's not, it's... And, and somebody who's like trying to pick apart the Bible might say, well, he quoted from Isaiah and Micah. He obviously was confused. You know, Paul didn't know his Bible. No, no, he, he's talking about, um, you know, Isaiah and then the prophets that follow under the arrangement of the latter prophets under Isaiah. Are y'all with me? Okay, all right. So, um, okay. Um, then... Um, so, and let me just note this for you. Again, when you get to the 12 prophets, right? So Malachi shakes out at the end of the latter prophets. Now notice then the writings. Daniel for us is, is right there after Ezekiel, right? And right before Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, you know, the whole thing, right? In our Bible. Notice where Daniel is in this Jewish Bible. He's there with the writings. Psalms is the front burner book for the writings. So there are times, when, like if Jesus refers to Psalms, as far as a general terminology, he could be referring to literally the book of Psalms, what we would know, or the writings underneath. So, so Jesus says, in some cases, Jesus refers to the fact that you have Moses, you have the prophets, and you have the Psalms. 
He's not just talking about what we call the 150, right, psalm book. He's talking about sometimes that whole sequence. Y'all with me on that? So that's so like when you read people in Scripture referring to Scripture, it really helps to know this. Um, okay, now let's look at a, um, a few prophetic and or anticipatory chapters or passages at the key junctures of canon segments. And do I have any questions from Zoom or from Facebook? Are we all tracking with this? Good? Okay. All right, so let me move over here a little bit closer so, since, since we have the video on. All right, so uh, we're going to fly through these, but you're going to see some, some things going on here. Um, and we're going to try to get to the prophetic ones that I've highlighted because that's the next thing to get to. Um, all right, so again, the, the fifth and final book of the books of Moses or Torah would be what? The fifth and final book. Deuteronomy. So, does it make sense that we might want to check out what's at the very end of Deuteronomy? It makes sense, right? Because that's the end of the first major segment of the Old Testament. By the way, any way you shake out the Old Testament, either in our standard Protestant Bible, right? It's the final chapter, the final book of what we call the Pentateuch or the law, right? And it's also in the Jewish Bible, the final of the, of the books of Torah, or Moses. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 34. And what's the little heading there you see in the ESV? It's a significant moment <laughs> in the life of Israel, right? What's going on? What's being described in chapter 34? The death of Moses. Then Moses went up from the... Now, is Moses in the promised land? No, he doesn't get to go, right? But he gets to see, okay, so then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. So he's out there. Jericho, remember, is over, you know, over the Jordan River, right? He's looking over. Um, and the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead, as far as Dan, so he's looking way up north, all Naphtali, looking in the area of like just right up above, you know, around Galilee. The land of Ephraim, Manasseh, the land of Judah. Now he's looking south. As far as the western sea. Now, I don't think I need to have you pull out the map to figure out what that is. What is the western sea? If he's looking from present-day Jordan across into what we would call Israel and then Palestine, north, south, and then beyond to the west, the western sea. What's the western sea? Mediterranean. Mediterranean. Good. Okay. Okay. the Negev, so he's looking south, desert area. The plain, that is the valley of Jericho. He's looking back now, he's looking back through the Rift Valley, like Jericho heading south. Um, the city of palm trees, as far as Zoar. So yeah, he's definitely looking south now. And the Lord said to him, you can go back and look at the maps and figure out what, I'm, what we're talking about here, okay? And the Lord said to him, This is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring, and I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. 
And this is like middle Jordan, okay, the middle of the present-day country of Jordan, okay? Not Ammon, north, not Edom, south. This is Moab, um, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried, who's he? Is Moses buried himself? Yeah. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed. Don't you want to be like that? His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. It was just time for him to go. Okay? Um, and the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord had commanded Moses. Okay, so you've got a passing of the leadership here, right? And a laying on of hands. And you've got good transition going on there. But we're actually, in one way, more interested in these, this final little thing, okay? And there has not arisen a prophet's sense in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh, the Lord, knew face to face. Uh, none like him for all the signs and the wonders that Yahweh sent him to do in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. We have not had a prophet at that level since. A prophet who was able to, even though he didn't see the Lord face to face, was able to take counsel with the Lord face-to-face, -face, broadly speaking, you know, and, and talk directly with God like that and do all those incredible signs and wonders to bring judgment on Pharaoh and all Egypt. We just haven't had a prophet like that since. That's the editorial note as you close out Torah. Uh, when Jesus comes and Jesus asks his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? You know, one of the answers is one of the prophets and one of the answers is the prophet. What are they talking about? Right here, the answer to this verse. We haven't had one like at that level since Moses. But when Messiah comes, we think he's going to be able to answer that question, you know, or fill in that level. Does it turn out that Messiah is, let's just say, somewhat higher than that level? What do you think? Yes, of course that's the answer. Because, by, by the way, people with John the Baptist are thinking, oh, he's... He's maybe going to be, you know, we, we, we've been waiting like for, you know, 1,400 years for, for the guy who answers this final verse of Torah to appear to us, and maybe it's John the Baptist. Well, no, he, you know, he wasn't able to kind of pull off everything, but maybe it's going to be this guy, Jesus from, from Nazareth. So y'all see that dynamic going on there, right? And this gets into um, now. Does Isaiah get close to this level? Yeah, certainly his consultation with the Lord, right? Now, he doesn't do the signs and wonders of judgment on the empire that, Pharaoh, that, that Moses is able to pull off. But, but Isaiah is already telling us, well, yeah, the one who comes is going to be both more powerful than Moses, but not as impressive as Moses in the same time if you're looking for him to be victorious. And that's what we get with the cross and with Jesus. Right? So you see that already. 
at that juncture in uh, the Scripture, both for the Jewish Bible and for our standard Protestant Bible. You know the end of Moses' books. That's a big deal, that, that little note there. Okay. Um, let's move on to another key. So, by the way, so Joshua 1, Joshua does take over and take the people in the Promised Land. I'm not going to read that right now. Okay. I mean, I can go back to that if y'all need me to. But anyway, you remember, uh, the Lord says, I'm with you. I'm going to give you courage. Be courageous. I, you know, where you go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it happen. Okay? You go take the land. You be obedient to what I've called you to do. Okay? And so uh, Joshua is courageous and does lead the people. They don't fulfill what they're supposed to do with the promised land, even taking it, really. But that, that moves us on. Okay, now, let's go over to the writings I'm doing this in kind of our, uh, it, I'm going back and forth with our Protestant Bible. In the, so let's just go ahead and go to the writings next, okay? So what's the first book in the writings? We've already talked about that. It's a book that we studied a lot for like six months here in, on Wednesday night. What, what's it called? Okay, now we're going to hit something that if you were with me for the psalm studies, this ought to ring a lot of bells because I kept going over and over these two psalms. The first two psalms at the beginning of the writings, are a huge deal. Huge deal. Um, uh, Psalm 1. Psalm 1. The Beatitude Psalm on wisdom. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law, Torah. So you're linking back to Torah. Everybody see that, right? You're linking back to the first major segment of the Bible and God's instruction for how you're supposed to live. Uh, his delight is in the law or Torah of Jehovah, of Yahweh. And on his Torah, on his instruction, this blessed person meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. Okay, um, so he is a tree, whoever this person is, who doesn't die. He's constantly giving fruit. I didn't take us here yet, but you guys are going to remember this. When God establishes a garden, right, and puts man in the garden, what's the, there's two big time trees, but the, like the ultimate tree that you're tracking all the way through the Bible that we need to get to, right, is called, it's not the tree of good and evil. I'm going ahead and tell you, so you all ought to be able to answer this question. What is it? Tree of, tree of life. And this psalm is basically telling you that whoever fulfills this is like the tree of life. Who actually fulfills Psalm 1? Jesus, right? Okay, Jesus. Okay, so y'all picking this up, right? This is a big deal. We're opening the writings with this image of this ultimately faithful person. And at one level, you can read it like, well, this is what a good person, a good faithful Jew should do, right? But we know, like, really only one fulfills this to the level of being a tree of life, right? Like, I mean, his fruit just never... Are y'all constantly full of awesome fruit for God? Anybody in here ever achieve that? Like, like ongoing, like, without limit, without... Ever. There's one person who does that, okay? So let's keep going. The wicked are not so, and you see this is not just wisdom. Deeper level, this is a judgment 
psalm, okay? And the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. We've already had the overture. Now let's go to Psalm 2. You know we study this a lot in the summer and in the fall with the Psalms. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers um, take counsel together. Against whom? Yahweh and somebody else. Who's, who are all the world powers out to get? All the powers and principalities of this age. Who are they out to get? The Lord and somebody else. Who's the somebody else? Yahweh and his anointed his Messiah. Y'all see that? Um, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. We want to define ourselves. We want to be in charge, right? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them. Adonai holds them in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, well, what is the answer going to be? If they're going to repent, what do they need to do? Well, let's keep reading. What is the story of the entire Bible, actually, and really ultimate judgment? What, what do you need to do? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Who's talking now? The son, whoever this anointed one is that everybody's going to have to bow down to, right? Let's keep reading. Um, ask of me, the Lord is saying to him, and I will make the nations your heritage. Not just Israel, by the way. Notice that. All the nations, all the peoples. Um, and the ends of the earth, your possession. Uh, who talks about the ends of the earth belonging to him? Yeah, all authority in heaven and on. Go now, make disciples of all nations, you know, to, okay, to the ends of the earth, basically, okay? So, um, your possession, ends of the earth. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun... So we've talked about the anointed. Now we're talking about the son, and we're talking about the same person, right? Everybody see that? Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You can track this all the way through the end of Revelation. This just told you the game plan, okay? This is at the very beginning of the writings. Everybody with me on this? This is what's going to happen the rest of the Bible. This basically takes you through the rest of the Bible right there. Not just the Old Testament, the New Testament too. Okay, now let's go to um, the close of uh, Malachi, and then we're going to go to the close of the writings for the Jewish Bible. Okay, so Malachi 4. Uh, this is the last of the prophets. And for us, it's the very end of the Old Testament. 
so um, so Jim, like the, in a way, this is later than the end of Second Chronicles, as we're going to see. So it's you know um, maybe better in that sense. So um, say, what's the very end of the Old Testament in our Protestant Bible? And what's the end of the latter prophets or the prophets in the whole juncture of the Jewish Bible? What's it going to be about? Well, let's look and see. Malachi chapter 4. What's the little title there if you're looking at the ESV? You already know what it's about, right? The great day of the Lord. Is that like 50 years ago? Is that when we won World War I? Is that what that's talking about? No. That's like the big time, okay? So let's see what's going to happen here. For behold, the day is coming... Burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. Does this kind of track with Psalm 1 and 2 for you guys? Yeah. Okay. Um, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. You know that term from Isaiah, right? Uh, the Lord of the heavenly armies. Uh, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And you've heard me preach sermons about how Jesus fulfills that uh, preemptively, or uh, I guess uh, prototypically in his ministry. When the woman with the flow of blood reaches out to his crespion, to the wing of his robe, y'all remember that, right? And this, by the way, is why we say in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, and I pretty much sometimes have to go back and re-edit if I can catch it. Sometimes people, when they're doing the words for this, including in our office, will correct S-U-N to S-O-N because it surely can't be S-U-N because that sounds kind of pagan or something like that. No, 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 it's right out of the Bible. We're talking about the rising of righteousness with the son of righteousness who has healing in his wings, which is what Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Y'all remember that verse, right? That phrase in, yeah, son of right. Okay, okay. So it's supposed to be S-U-N there, okay? Okay. Um, so um, you will go out. Okay, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings, literally his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of the heavenly armies. Okay? This is, okay, again, um, this all tracks all the way through Revelation, okay? Um, remember the law of my servant Moses and the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. This is where that anticipation of Elijah comes for the you know, final. And is, is John the Baptist Elijah? Is Jesus Elijah? You know, all those questions. And Jesus says, I tell you the truth, John the Baptist just fulfilled this. Y'all remember this, right? In the news. Okay. So, um, behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that is the end of our Old Testament. So, let's go to the end of the Jewish Old Testament, which is the end of Second Chronicles. And it is a it sets us on, so we're looking at the day of the Lord and the coming of the Lord at the end of, of um, Malachi, right? Malachi 4. Now we're going to look to something else.
that looks to the restoration of Zion and the kingdom of David. Okay? So this is the end of uh, Chronicles. Second Chronicles, chapter 36. Uh, you can read through the whole thing. You can see the headline or the title for chapter 36 of Second Chronicles in the ESV, at least, is Judah's Decline, right? And it probably should say Judah's Decline and, you know, destruction, <laughs> basically. Okay, let's pick up um, at verse 17. Jerusalem captured and burned. This directly applies to what happens in the aftermath of Isaiah's prophecies. You know, over the next 110 years after Isaiah has wrapped up his prophecies. This is the immediate thing. Therefore, he brought up against them. Uh, who's he, by the way? If, if you were reading this from me and I put it in your bulletin, I would have capitalized he so you could understand. He's talking about the Lord, right? Okay. Um, therefore, he brought up against them. So the Lord brought up against them. This is the Lord bringing judgment. Does God bring judgment on nations? I thought he just loves us. He doesn't care, right? Well, he's bringing judgment here. Therefore, he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans. Now, that is old terminology for Babylon. Remember on the map, and I talked to you all about this sequence of these empires. We'll keep going through this. You'll get this really down, okay? Chaldeans. That's down in lower Mesopotamia, Babylon, okay? What we would refer to broadly as Babylon. Therefore, he brought the king of the Chaldeans, who killed their young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. I mean, so the Lord sends Babylon. This is what this is telling us. The Lord sends Babylon not only to Zion, not only to Jerusalem, but literally into the temple to kill the young men with swords um, in the, inside the temple. Um, in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged, he gave them all into his hand. This wasn't an accident. This is judgment. And all the vessels of the house of God, great and small, and the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king of his princes, all these he brought to Babylon. And they burned the house of God. And just pause here. Now remember, if you know your Old Testament, Ezekiel tells us who leaves the temple before the Babylonians get there? The Lord, right? And where does he go? Come on now, y'all heard me preach on Mark on this. How does Jesus come in? Where does Jesus come in from? Eastward from, right, the Mount of Olives. Where does the Lord leave? Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, so in the, this is what the prophets tell us. Then he's going to, how's he going to come back when he comes? Same way. How does Jesus come into Jerusalem when he comes in, when he rides in on a donkey? Same way, okay. All right. Um, uh, he, uh, so he, and they, they, they burned the house of, this means the temple now, and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces and, fi and with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. He took into exile in Babylon those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. Oh, God's got a long-term plan here. So remember how last week I said when the Medes go over with the Persians, they take down the Babylonians, the Babylonian Empire, 
after the exile of the Jews only lasts 70 years, right? I mean, it's like less than 70 years. Um, um, to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. You guys can keep Sabbath, so I'm laying on Sabbath on you. It's 70 years. This is what the Lord is saying. I want a 70-year Sabbath on the land. And then, a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of hope to end the Jewish Bible. Right? You've got to get in this Jewish mode of thinking now and understand this leads into, you know, Jesus, right? Malachi, we saw how that leads into Jesus, okay? The big prophetic coming of the Lord. Let's look at this. Now, in the first year of, king, uh, of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it into writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, this is Iran, right? What we would call Iran. The Lord, Yahweh, God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you, of all his people, may Jehovah, may Yahweh, the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go up. Now, you already knew this was going to happen if you read Isaiah, you know, 150 years before this goes down, right? Because Isaiah says, Isaiah prophesies about Cyrus being the anointed of God to do this very act. We're going to get, we'll, we'll see that. You'll cross that path in Isaiah. Isaiah, know, Isaiah knows this is going to happen. Um, is, does, does, does Cyrus convert to Judaism? Did he get circumcised and was he the first worshiper at the temple when it was rebuilt? No. Oh. But he's acknowledging the sovereignty of the Lord God of Israel. It's really interesting. Janice Kynard, I don't know if she's listening in on Facebook or Zoom, asked me a question. We can circle back around to it again. But when Saul is in trouble, he asked Samuel to pray to your God. Why is Saul doing that? Isn't the Lord also Saul's God? And there are probably several levels of response to that. What do you all think? Is the Lord... Is, is Yahweh God, Saul's God? The answer is kind of like yes and maybe not, right? Uh, so yes, he definitely is. By the way, is, is God in one sense the God over, I don't know, Jing Jiaoping, you know? What do you think? Yeah. But, I mean, does he worship God? Does he have a relationship with God? Does he have an inside conversation going on with God? That's, you start getting into that stuff. The ancient people understand this. Somebody can claim that they, they're even part of, you know, they go to the worship services, this or that, but do they have a sense of, God's really going to listen to me right now? No. Um, and so... And, and Saul, in his confusion and sin, which is like, this is almost a self-fulfilling self prophecy, right? <laughs> that, that Saul is like, you can talk to him, I can't. Please talk to your God. Um, even with the patriarchs, 
they tend to refer to the God of Abraham, and then it gets reaffirmed that, well, no, actually, um, you built an altar to me. You've talked to me now, Isaac, finally. <laughs> you know, when you're an older man, I I'm your God now. I'm going to talk to you. But there's a sense in the ancients of I'm trusting in the God of my fathers, right? And I'm calling on you as the God of my fathers, but I'm not sure if you're my God too. Like I really have a direct covenant relationship with you. So there's that level thing going on too. Do, do, as Christians, do we run into this kind of conversation sometimes with people? Yeah, right? Um, but, you know, if we're really believers in Jesus, we all have, that's part of the beauty of the new covenant. We all have direct access, right? We have direct access through Jesus. Okay. So anyway, that's, that's kind of part of that. But you notice, like, Cyrus, Cyrus is totally acknowledging God's authority, the Lord God of Israel, but he's not his personal God. He's got other gods. But he, as, as ruler of the known world, he wants to be in good relationship with any God who has serious power, and he's obviously acknowledging that this God of the heavens has authority over Zion, and he needs to give Zion back and let him have this temple. So that's the way the Jewish Bible ends. Um, let's do just a hair into the next thing. Um, let's move on. Any questions on this? Let me do, let, let's do just a few more minutes. Let me give you, I tell you what, we'll come back maybe to dig in. Let me give you the broad highlights of God's co covenant promises to Israel. Y'all see that number two down at the bottom here, which picks up on our one, two, three. We're not doing the maps tonight. Sorry, we're just not. But some of these words and terms are going to come back into the maps. The maps will help us as we look down the line. Okay, so... Um, Genesis, I'm not going to do the other Genesis. I'm not going to do the early, the chapters 1 and 2. I hope you all know those. We can come back to those. Okay, big, big stuff there for sure. Um, but I'm just going to go to after the fall. Huge promise. 3.15. 3.15. Genesis 3.15. The Lord gives this proto-evangelion promise to and through, believe it or not, the serpent. 3.15. This is one of the most important verses in all the Bible. It, like, frames out a lot of stuff in the Bible. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Everybody see that? That is understood to be a preeminent prophecy about Jesus and, by the way, all the way through Isaiah and all the way to 52 and 53, the one who's pierced for our transgressions. Okay? Because you notice he's going to defeat the serpent, but he himself is going to be mortally injured. Y'all see that? Okay. All right, that's a huge promise. Huge promise that rides all the way through the rest of the Scripture. Now, let's go over to Genesis 15. Most of you have heard me teach or preach about this, and most of you know this, so, but I'll, I'll just give some brief summaries. If you're with, with me on my Sunday school class, you definitely know this because we went into, I went into this pretty extensively. But anyway, this is... Um, Obviously, you've got the earlier uh, Genesis 12, 
call and initial covenant promises to Isaiah, excuse me, to uh, Abraham, Abram, about the blessings, and uh, everybody's going to be blessed through him, and the people and the land that God is going to show Abram. Now we got this big time thing. Um, picking up at verse four, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And that's the first time in the Old Testament that we get that phraseology, which is phraseology of a prophet. So who is a prophet? If the word of the Lord comes to Abram, who's a prophet? Abram, right? Abraham. Um, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eleazar of Damascus, shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And this is verse 6 now that we're at, which is considered by Paul, right, and by the author of Hebrews to be the linchpin of the gospel running throughout the entire Bible. And he believed Yahweh, Avram believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, what exactly, what great acts, what Herculean acts did God make Avram do to get this righteousness? Nothing. Um, did, uh, is, is Avram even circumcised yet? No, that happens at the further reiteration of the covenant over in chapter 17. We're not even there yet. He's not circumcised yet. Yeah, but he's, he's got the tablets of the Ten Commandments and he's following them, right? No, that's, that's several hundred years down the road, right? Is he, uh, I don't know, wearing a prayer shawl and going to the Western Wall? Is he doing any of that kind of stuff? No. It's just like he believes him and it's credited to him as righteousness. Now, whose righteousness is this? Has, has Abraham built up a bank of righteousness after telling Pharaoh that Sarah is his sister and Pharaoh can sleep with her? Does that sound like a really good bank of righteousness coming from Abraham? Now, it's true Abraham's done some really good things and he's followed the call, right? But is this bank of righteousness coming from Abraham? No. From whom is it coming? It's God's righteousness, and it's really striking that this is where he offers that as an unconditional covenant. Yes, and so, this is key. So, you may remember last week, and Jim, you were kind of like resonating with me when I said this. The, the, what's going on with Isaiah, I believe, is you've got the unconditional covenants of, with Abraham and with David. And sometimes conditional, sometimes unconditional covenant going on with Israel. Israel clearly has failed. But Abraham and David and God's covenants with them prevailed all the way ahead of what Isaiah is prophesying. Isaiah sees it, and Isaiah sees all the way through the Christ. I mean, he's looking, so these, these promises are key. You have to track with this, and Isaiah's going to like pick up all this where he is at the utter failure of Israel, right? And looking at worse failure about to happen and saying, yes, but there's judgment coming, but we get this. So then let me just summarize this for you. You may remember that, um, you know, and then he promises him the land too, once again, you know, and Abraham's like, you know, how am I going to know this? Okay, so let's, uh, so what happens is 
the Lord cuts this covenant with Abraham, and he tells Abraham to prepare, you know, all the beasts that are cut in half and the birds that aren't cut in half but are also sacrificed. You all remember this, right? I'm not going to read through all this because I'm kind of running late tonight. But, okay, then the Lord causes this deep sleep to come on Abram. With the bilateral covenant, both parties are supposed to walk through the bloodied animals and say, so be it to me if I break this covenant. But Abraham wakes up from this sleep and, uh, you know, the fire pot's going through and it's the Lord going through. And um, so the Lord is saying, if this covenant is broken, I die. Now, how could you possibly comprehend that unless you connect it with the cross, right? So that's there. That plays off of right after he credited to him his righteousness, and he's going to be the one who goes through and secures the covenant when it's broken. Which again, back to like, yeah, this is a, I mean, let me ride in on this covenant and not the Mosaic one, please, right? I mean, you know. This is God doing all the, God does every bit of the heavy lifting. And then you remember when, uh, when Abraham's supposed to offer Isaac, uh, you know, this is over in 22, and, um, you know, he's about, he is about to offer Isaac. And the Lord says, the angel of the Lord says, no, don't touch the boy. The angel of the Lord says, and, and there's the, there's the um, ram, and, uh, you know, Abraham going up, it says the Lord will, will provide the lamb, right? And we get a ram. We don't have a lamb yet. Lamb's, like, later in the Bible, okay? But um, it's like God's doing the whole thing. This is an awesome covenant. I mean, it's an awesome relationship. Now, do you think Abraham would be acknowledged as God is his God? What do you think? For sure. Like, like God is really his God. Okay, so then let's see... Um, just picking up on, well, we'll stop there. We'll stop there. We'll come back to Deuteronomy, the conditional covenant, right? If you guys follow this, you're going to really be blessed in the land, okay? And then um, we'll pick that up in Deuteronomy. Then we'll pick up David in 2 Samuel. And then Jeremiah 31, which is what? What's Jeremiah 31 about? Anybody know? Anybody know? Jeremiah 31. Okay, well, we'll come to that next week. That's fine. Okay, that's good. All right. All right. Yes. Okay. Let's wrap up. Thank you all for being with us. Uh, I'll pray and uh, 